Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Hi, this is Trisha Keffer with New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Alexander Garvin. His new book is The Heart of the City, Creating Vibrant Downtowns for a New Century, published by Island Press in 2019. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you tell the audience uh, a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, uh, and at the age of 17, I entered Yale College, went to the architecture school there, graduated with three degrees, one in city planning, and uh, I have been teaching part-time at Yale for Uh, 53 years from that point on, I've had full-time jobs in New York during that period. I worked in five different city administrations. I was on the city planning commission. I was for 15 months in charge of rebuilding the World Trade Center right after 9-11. I uh, have written numerous books, including The Heart of the City, and I am a practicing city planner. Those of your audience that are interested in parks would be fascinated to know that I'm the person who thought up the Beltline in Atlanta, which is now changing that city. Oh, well, yes, that's uh, that's going forward, too, uh, isn't it, in the Beltline? It's more than half finished, more than 23 miles. I don't know how much at the moment, but it's changing the city of Atlanta from a city famous for automobiles and traffic tie-ups to a place where people are jogging and cycling and Uh, walking uh, together, every income level, every ethnic group, mixing. It is quite something to see. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that. Well, uh, let me ask you, what was your motivation for writing this book? I had been a lifelong New Yorker who knew forever that Lower Manhattan was in decline. And I used to go to meetings almost two or three times a week in Lower Manhattan most of my adult life. When the path terminal opened, the new railroad station in Lower Manhattan, I decided to go down and see what it was like. And I had not looked at Lower Manhattan in 15 years as a whole. My astonishment, it was thriving. So I went home, I looked up the numbers. Lower Manhattan in the last 25 years had lost 25% of its office space and there were now 9,000 more private sector jobs. My first reaction was not possible. And then as a trained architect, I figured out we're using less space for offices. Indeed we are. In 1950, I looked up the number, we use 500 square feet per office worker. Today it's 150. What was happening was the Class B office space was going out of use and being vacated. Private developers were buying up these old buildings and converting them into apartment houses. So that Lower Manhattan, which in 1970 had 800 residents, today has more than 
60,000 residents. I asked myself, is this happening anywhere else? I went online to look up what I thought was the least likely downtown to be in revival, Los Angeles. The same thing was happening in Los Angeles, exactly the same thing. And my immediate reaction was, well, maybe this is happening somewhere else. And sure enough, it was. I decided to write a book about it. And I discovered in writing the book that there were three trajectories. There were downtowns like Los Angeles, uh, not downtowns, cities like Los Angeles and Houston and Dallas that had continued to grow. Some of them had problems downtown. Most of them did not. Then there were the cities that were in decline, that were still struggling. St. Louis, Bridgeport, Buffalo, Detroit. And the third group were like Lower Manhattan and downtown Los Angeles, which were involved in resurgence. I wondered why. And I discovered that the change began 25, 30 years ago, around 1990. The first reason was obvious, the decline in crime. People were no longer afraid of going downtown. The second reason I already knew, that is the creation of business improvement districts to provide street sweeping, garbage collection, increased police patrols downtown. These organizations began to proliferate in 1990. There are now 1,400 downtown business uh, districts in the United States. What a BID is, is a targeted section of the city, a small portion of it called the heart of the city. And that downtown area had been, in my experience, almost everywhere in the United States, a single function business district. It went to sleep at six o'clock on Friday afternoon and awakened at six o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. When at the end of the Second World War, people began to require additional services, garbage collection twice a week instead of once, uh, additional police protection, the local city councils obviously tried to satisfy their desires. They decided to put their money in the neighborhoods. They didn't have constituents downtown. All of a sudden, downtowns across the country began to have dirty streets, increased crime. The business improvement districts are a way of putting a tax surcharge on the residents, uh, not the residents, the businesses and uh, the real estate property owners downtown collected by the city given to a newly created organization called the BID, which provides those services. The organization, therefore, is of the people, by the people, and for the people downtown, as opposed to the whole city. Most downtowns are a small portion of the city. Philadelphia, for example, is 4% of the territory and 44% of the taxes. So, how many downtowns do we have? I wondered. I discovered what I knew about New York was true of other cities. We have many downtowns in New York, Midtown Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, downtown Brooklyn. But there are three downtowns in Atlanta, three downtowns in Houston, 
and so on. And those downtowns are growing in many places. The second thing that uh, I discovered was that there was a third and a far more important reason uh, for the resurgence of those downtowns, and it was the Internet. In 1990, the Internet begins to proliferate. Suddenly, you don't need filing cabinets. You don't need filing clerks. That is why we're using much less space per office worker. And when you have that decline in demand, the Class B office space goes out of use and private developers come in, buy the buildings and turn them into housing. And so these thriving downtowns all now are high density mixed use downtowns. And that's a big change from the downtowns that used to go to sleep uh, on Friday afternoon. Wow. So uh, what is your definition of a downtown? Well, that's a wonderful question and very difficult to answer. The business improvement districts are not necessarily the downtown. They're a piece of the downtown. For example, there are five, uh, uh, no, I think seven downtown BIDs in downtown Los Angeles. And then an overarching one combines them. Uh, the BID in Philadelphia, which is probably the most successful in the country, uh, occupies really all of the downtown, and their map shows it. Uh, then we have uh, separate BIDs for most but not all of Lower Manhattan, uh, most but not all of uh, some of the districts in Midtown Manhattan. We have a 34th Street Business Improvement District, a Bryant Park Business Improvement District, and so on. And one of the problems we have is they're not standardized. The United States Census, until about 1980, used to collect statistics about the downtown and define what it was. That's not being done anymore. So one of the things at the end of the book that I call for is national legislation to standardize what the BID is, uh, how it collects statistics, and what it's supposed to uh, reveal to the public, and finally, what are the activities they have to be able to do in order to keep the uh, BID thriving. Uh, that would be very controversial because you need not only national legislation, but same legislation in 50 states. Um, so with that, how do we do it? How do we create and plan great downtowns? The most important thing is that you have to have the support of the people who work downtown, the businesses that provide their jobs, and uh, the government itself. Without that, you can't do it. But the thing that you need thereafter is a, an inspired downtown business district staff and leadership. In Philadelphia, that leadership is provided by a man named Paul Levy. Uh, he has been doing it since the early 1990s. And as a result, downtown Philadelphia has clean streets, clean sidewalks, wayfinding signs. Uh, Los Angeles has a, a BID which promotes the city and actually was bringing investors from other cities downtown to show them that Los Angeles was alive. And, uh, the head of the BID, uh, inspired lady, I think her name is Schacht, uh, was responsible for that. Perhaps the most impressive of all of them is a man named Dan Biederman, 
who is one of the very early BID leaders for Bryant Park in New York. Some of your uh, listeners may know that Bryant Park was a disaster in 1970s. Uh, we had 900 robberies a year. Think of that. We have hardly any today. And the reason is that the money that was collected from the tax surcharge goes to cleaning up the park, providing security, uh, wayfinding, promoting things. They have movies in the summertime uh, once a week. They have concerts all the time. Uh, they put in a restaurant and a cafe and uh, snack stands. You can get cappuccino. Uh, it is a remarkable place. And on a typical afternoon, like today in May, there will be two to 3,000 people at 5 o'clock in that park. Think about it. You know, the police used to have to put up barriers at 8 o'clock at night because tourists would wander in and they could get mugged. That's a big change. And those BIDs have made it, and the inspired leadership is a big part of it. Well, on that note, with another famous park in New York City, um, Central Park, uh, you put in a book about uh, you thought Frederick Law Olmsted was one of our greatest city planners. Why is that? What did he do? Uh, well, I think you have to separate these things. Central Park is not a downtown. Central Park is a park. Bryan Park happens to be right behind the public library on 42nd Street, a block from Times Square. That is a downtown facility and is a big difference. Olmsted, I worship at the altar of Frederick Law Olmsted. He, he and Calvert Vaux designed Central Park. There had been no public parks acquired and designed uh, for recreational purposes in the United States. You had the Boston Common, the New Haven Green, but that wasn't for recreation. And Olmsted began designing a series of parks around the country uh, that became models for parks developed uh, for the next century and a half. Um, Central Park is 1858 is the day that, that, that they uh, actually started to build the new Central Park. That's a very different thing from a downtown. If you're interested in that, I have another book uh, called Public Parks, The Key to Livable Communities. But the downtown is a very different thing. It's a mixed-use, high-density place uh, that has high-rise buildings and traffic and manufacturing in some cases, uh, certainly uh, commercial activity in great quantity. Okay, jump in a little bit. We'll go to Atlanta um, and the Beltline. Uh, do you think that uh, there was any influence there for you from Frederick Law Olmsted's park in uh, creating the Beltline? And how is it, uh, why is it, and how is it successful? Well, my idea for the Beltline was inspired by Frederick Law Olmsted uh, and the Emerald Necklace in Boston, which is a six mile long uh, connection of parks with a Greenway connecting uh, the Charles River with the Muddy River uh, with uh, the uh, Reservoir and the Arboretum and finally Franklin Park. It connected a series of parks. When I went to Atlanta at the request of the Trust for Public Land, they said, 
only three and a half percent of the territory of Atlanta. It was parkland, that was not enough. Uh, how could I help? And to give you a context, uh, this put Atlanta way down at the bottom of the list. The three cities with the greatest proportion of their territory are devoted to parks are Boston, New York, and San Francisco, and they're all hovering around 20%. I went up in a helicopter, which I do regularly when I work, and I saw this rail line. The rail line had been used for freight. It had been identified by a graduate student at uh, Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech who had uh, thought it would make a great transit line, but it was owned by three separate uh, government or railroad entities. It was disconnected uh, and largely out of use, except the one section uh, that was busy uh, with freight moving on it. And I noticed that it connected Piedmont Park and several others, and I saw a uh, quarry, the Bellwood Quarry. And I thought, gee, that would make a great park. Well, I proposed this in 2004. In 2005, the city council approved it, along with the development corporation, to create and operate it. Uh, in uh, 2006, they uh, levied a tax to pay for all of this, and they began working. It's now half finished. It's 23 miles long. The quarry was acquired on behalf of the city by the Trust for Public Land, I think in 2006. It is becoming the uh, largest park in Atlanta, and it is part of this emerald necklace. So my report was called the Beltline Emerald Necklace. So ironically, Olmsted had a great deal to do with it, but not in the way that most people think. It had to do with the greenways uh, that were part of the emerald necklace. So it sounds like a, a strategy for downtowns is to have uh, a green parkway. Is that what the successful cities are? You can only do that where you can get the land for it. You can't in most cities. Most cities do not have unused property uh, that uh, can be connected into such a thing. We have a few of them. The High Line in New York was an abandoned freight line, and it has become a new park in uh, Manhattan. Uh, but I defy you to go to most cities and find a long stretch that can be reused that way. Uh, or even large amounts of property. New York is unusual in this respect because we keep creating new parks. Uh, we began, as I said, in 18, actually 1857, they held the design competition. Uh, but uh, we now have been adding parks for the last uh, two decades. We have a Brooklyn Bridge Park, which didn't exist in 2000. We have the Hudson River Park, which didn't exist. Uh, we we are constantly adding new parkland. Many cities are not doing that. Uh, and I would argue that you need a great public realm and great public parks for any downtown. The downtowns that are thriving all have a great public realm. That is streets that are usable, uh, squares, uh, parks, and usually a transit system that services it. The best example of this is Detroit uh, is Denver. Denver, uh, some 40 years ago, created uh, a pedestrianized street on 16th Street. And over the last 
half century, they had been locating all their major facilities within three blocks of it. They already had City Hall and the state capitol. They now have stadiums, ballparks, convention center, the performing arts center, and this street, they banned private automobile traffic, and they had a free bus that went up and down it. It was landscaped. People used to walk there. But they did something 20 years ago that is unique in the country. They had a vote of all of the counties in metropolitan Denver, and they voted a five half cent sales tax to pay for the creation of a light rail system. And today, there's a light rail system from every county, from all directions in metropolitan uh, Denver uh, to downtown to 16th Street. There's even a line that goes from the airport directly to Union Station downtown. I took it uh, a year and a half ago because I was writing this book and I wanted to look at what was going on. And you walk out of Union Station onto 16th Street to get on the free bus and you can go where, almost everywhere that you want to go. Um, so it's not just parkland, it's the entire public realm, the streets, the squares, and the mass transit system as well. Oh, that's interesting. So it takes like a complete system to make a downtown connected and make a city work. Yes, and in fact, uh, downtown Denver today has uh, 50% more residents than it did uh, in 1980. That's an enormous change. And we have uh, the same thing happening in lower Manhattan because it's connected by subway to everything. And it has the path railroad terminal. In midtown Manhattan, we have Grand Central Terminal and Penn Station. And so this is very important. Uh, and the transit system makes a difference, but it requires investment. In the past half century, we've added uh, transit to Atlanta, to the San Francisco Bay Area, but there are lots of places that weren't doing it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I want to change gears just a little bit because you talked a little bit about um, artists and their need for inexpensive rent um, and how they were also changing and modifying downtowns. Um, how is this happening, and is this, a, is this a strategy? It is a strategy, but you have to look at exactly what you're doing. It is a strategy that uh, is not about affordable housing. It's about places that are affordable for artists. It began in Soho in New York. This was a, a district south of Houston Street, which was warehouses and manufacturing plants, multi-story manufacturing plants. They went out of use. As you know, we have been deindustrializing across the country. What accompanied that, of course, was the vacating of uh, warehouses and factories. In New York, that meant there were large areas with high ceilings that were available at low rents. Artists discovered them. They began moving in and turning them into artist studios. The artist studios were followed by the art galleries and the boutiques. And pretty soon, Soho was too expensive for the art artists. They had to move out. Those who were lucky enough to have bought their apartment made a fortune and moved elsewhere. Most of them were renters and could not. And they moved to other areas like Chelsea, the Lower East Side, uh, Williamsburg and Brooklyn, depending on, on the, the time period. 
because as soon as the artists come and the area thrives, they can't afford it anymore. There are cities that have been using this as a different kind of strategy. <coughs> and I write about it in the heart of the city. Uh, for example, uh, there's a nonprofit housing development corporation in Baltimore, which has been building housing for artists in specific in those areas on the edge of downtown where you can still get land at relatively inexpensive prices. Uh, Sci Arc, that is the architecture school in Los Angeles, located downtown in Los Angeles. And of course, that has a spillover effect on the area in downtown they moved to, which had empty warehouses and, and uh, manufacturing plants. <coughs> the same sort of thing happened in, in Chicago uh, on Printer's Row. The other thing that uh, I think you have to understand is that the replacement of uh, <coughs> freight by rail uh, in cartons or by boat in cartons uh, and the creation of container ports becomes very important because that means that the manufacturing plants and warehouses don't have to be near a railroad yard or a waterfront. <clears throat> they have to be near the highway system, which happened to have begun being built in 1956. The result is that the rail yards went out of use as well because you didn't use them for freight anymore. So there are whole sections of cities where rail yards are being converted. Uh, the latest example is the Hudson Yards in New York behind Penn Station. We have a whole extension of Midtown Manhattan happening there. <clears throat> you have residential areas in, in Chicago uh, on uh, railroad yards as well. And uh, so now we're reprogramming all these spaces and it's actually benefiting all the downtowns and cities. Not all of them. There are still downtowns that are struggling. Uh, to give you an example, uh, downtown Detroit, which we keep hearing about doing better. And in fact, Dan Gilbert has moved Quicken Loans downtown and has been buying up dozens of buildings and uh, attempting to convert them uh, uh, to residential use. It's struggling. Downtown Detroit uh, has 5,000 people today and it has no department stores. Downtown Buckhead, on the other hand, which is the 27th largest downtown in America, it's one of three in Atlanta, has 12,500 residents and 10 department stores. Detroit has the problem that it lost over a million people between 1950 and today. They vacated all of the housing. Uh, it's not enough to come back. And the jobs that supported those million people went with it, partially deindustrialization, but also uh, they were better places to manufacture uh, in the South, for example. Uh, and whatever is being done in Detroit is terrific. It's not just Dan Gilbert. They have one of the most impressive downtown business improvement district. They're doing everything right. They have little squares and parks and pedestrianized ways. They are supporting uh, a greenway along uh, the waterfront. 
it's a remarkable institution, but it's not enough to, uh, to bring back the people uh, that uh, used to go downtown from uh, the residents of one, more than one million people. So uh, this, is, this is not magic. It requires effort and time. And there are places which, where the cities themselves are growing, and those places can support a growing downtown. But where the metropolitan area is not growing and the downtown is not growing, you're not going to be able to salvage the downtown. So I guess, you know, if you build it, they will come is not necessarily working in Detroit. Uh, it isn't working yet. I don't, I think it's premature to say, but if you build it, they will come. And I have a section of the book uh, devoted to that has to do with the existence of a market. And the example that I use is uh, the West Midtown area of Manhattan. It was the rail yards of the Pennsylvania station and also uh, all of the warehouses uh, that, and, and manufacturing plants in the garment districts that used to uh, depend on rail freight and some uh, ocean-going vessels as well. It was empty. Uh, people from the 1920s on dreamed of redeveloping and extending Midtown Manhattan to the Hudson River. When I did the plan to bring the Olympics to New York, we had the center of Olympic activities being in that area because we could build an Olympic square and several of the buildings on top of the rail yards. We had the convention center where we could have eight uh, mat sports. And the problem was nobody could get there by subway. And we were moving half a million people to these sites by subway. I suggested to my client, Dan Doctoroff, who was then the head of the effort to bring the Olympics to New York, that we should extend the number seven subway line from Times Square uh, to uh, 34th Street uh, on the far west side. He said, how do we pay for it? And I uh, showed him some pictures of what had happened around Grand Central Terminal. And he figured out immediately that if you could extend transit service, people would and where there was a market, people would build and the real estate taxes could pay for the subway extension. He became the deputy mayor for economic development under Michael Bloomberg. He proceeded to get the city of New York guarantee a small amount of bonds to pay the MTA to build that line. It was done. Now we have more than 10 times the amount of taxes we needed to pay for the extension of the subway. And the area is the Hudson Yards which is a model of how to create a new business district uh, that is high density and mixed use. And it is part of the next to last chapter of my book, The Heart of the City and the story of how it happened. Could you talk about that a little bit more about, because uh, I just started uh, watching some videos online, et cetera, about uh, the Hudson Yards and uh, the placemaking that they're doing over the rail line and uh, how it's revitalizing everything. Well, it, you have to begin with the fact that it costs tremendous amounts of money to platform a functioning rail yard. There's a train that goes in and out of Penn Station in the peak period almost every three minutes. You have to be able to build while the trains are moving in and out. The yards are used to store 
uh, the uh, trains of the Long Island Railroad, some of uh, Amtrak, uh, and people had been dreaming of building on those rail yards. They're between 10th and 11th Avenues and 11th and 12th Avenues, which is where the Hudson River is, um, for, since the 1920s. Nobody was able to succeed because there was no way of getting the workers uh, to that site. And when the city decided to do this, uh, the MTA put the property up for sale and they had a competition. Five different real estate companies prepared plans. Uh, the winning uh, company couldn't finance it. The related companies could. They replaced them. Uh, the plan is, was put together largely by the architecture firm KPF on behalf of the related uh, companies and related proceeded uh, to build this at great expense. The first of the rail yards, the one between 10th and 11th, is just reopening, is just opening this year. It is a huge boon because there are thousands of people who are going to live there, work there, go shopping there, and on property that was not occupied before. That means that the Midtown area is growing without having to displace anybody without having to lose low rent buildings, without eliminating buildings that have a cultural significance, even if they are not landmark. And it is thriving. I was there last week and I'm going to a concert there tomorrow. Uh, it is changing Midtown Manhattan. The second part, the Eastern Rail Yards, is about to go into construction. This entire development is changing the character uh, of Midtown. Well, let me ask you, we've talked about bigger cities. Um, can these strategies work for smaller um, hometown or uh, et cetera, even like um, I'm, from, I'm in Florida. So I, I think about like, you know, Tallahassee or Pensacola. Can any of these strategies work in smaller downtown areas? I talk about many of them in the book. Um, my favorite example, which is also in the next to last chapter, along with uh, the Hudson Yards, is downtown Cincinnati. Downtown Cincinnati had been in decline really from the end of the Second World War. And it consisted of two parts, a business district and then a section called Over the Rhine. Over the Rhine uh, morphed from a German immigrant area at 1900 to an area with a very large African-American population. It had a major riot at the beginning of the 21st century. I remember going there in the 1990s and being appalled at the quality of the slum, the vagrants that were hanging around outside. It was a high crime district. Uh, and after the riot, the mayor and the business community decided to do something, and they invented a strategy which I promote uh, in the next to last chapter of the book. Uh, and that strategy was to create a community development corporation. Procter & Gamble was one of the downtown businesses that gave a lot of money to this. It had the support of the mayor. In about 2006, it began operation, and they started buying up the 
decrepit old buildings and renovating them or filling in the vacant lots with low-scale new buildings. They were very clever. The first buildings which they acquired were buildings that on the ground floor had retail operations, very special retail operations, either bars or liquor stores. By the time they had closed down all the bars and liquor stores in the area, the vagrants began to disappear. All of a sudden, the neighborhood had a safer feel to it. At the same time, they were filling in uh, new housing, uh, sometimes at affordable rents, and they were renovating the existing park, the local opera house, a theater. They actually created a new park, and they were improving the major streets. And there's a whole discussion of how a community development corporation can be a boon uh, to a small but uh, troubled downtown like Cincinnati. Uh, this is so. Um, See, so they closed down the bars, and then that that was part of the programming that needed to be changed. Well, I I think it's as much the creation of a great public realm and uh, the beginnings of the renovation of buildings which were either falling apart and unoccupied or else uh, were in really bad condition. Uh, and adding cultural facilities. This is not just about housing. Uh, incidentally, there's a, a majority of the population in that district is still African-American, uh, but it is now mixed ethnic and mixed income, which it wasn't in at the time of the riot. Um, are there particular types of programming that, that causes blight? Well, there are many different reasons, um, and you have to look at each city differently. In the case of Detroit or St. Louis or Bridgeport, it is caused by the flight of industry and with it, the disappearance of jobs and followed by the people who no longer can afford to be there because there is no place for them to earn money. That's one kind of, of situation. Another kind of situation happens uh, and it happened in America in great amount after the Second World War, uh, we provided a highway system financed by the federal government that connected the entire country, an essential thing to our economic health. We also, uh, as a result of the Depression, created the FHA, which provided mortgage insurance to banks who financed the building of houses. And a, a Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae to buy up those mortgages from areas where banks had a great deal of demand and no more money to lend and sell them to areas that had uh, excess capital. Uh, they were standardized mortgages. They were uh, all self-advertising, long-term mortgages, something that had not existed before the Depression. And we had the proliferation after World War II of single-family suburbs with houses on large lots with backyards. Everybody wanted to own their own house. The amount of home ownership in the United States went uh, from around 40% to about uh, 63%, 64%, which is what it is today. And our suburbs burgeoned. The people who moved into those houses, many, many of whom uh, were 
making the beginnings of their new livelihood as young families uh, left downtown. They didn't want to be downtown. The schools weren't uh, as good. Uh, there, there was crime downtown. And they left the downtown area and moved to the suburbs. This lost the customers that you needed downtown. It's one of the reasons that downtown Cleveland had a problem. Downtown Cincinnati had a problem. And blight happens uh, often for reasons that are quite natural to what's happening to the economy. I know it's popular to say blight is what happens when landlords don't take care of buildings or when uh, irresponsible people move into the buildings. Well, that's true. But those situations tend to thrive where other more fundamental things are happening. Uh, nobody uh, that I know of fears that that's going to happen in downtown Miami, for example. <laughs> no. Um, what are some lessons learned uh, from all of your, your this, this book is amazing, um, from all of your knowledge and experience, what are some lessons learned about going forward in these, uh, in creating new vibrant downtowns? Well, the most important is that a single function business district is guaranteed uh, to a problem. Uh, the downtowns that continued to thrive, Miami among them, by the way, uh, and the ones that are resurgent in all cases are now no longer single function business districts. Uh, they are uh, mixed use, high density areas with more than just uh, office buildings. Uh, take Brickell Avenue in Miami as an example. Uh, you have residents right near there. You have hotels. Uh, it's mixed use, and it's in sneezing distance of Little Havana. And I would argue that uh, the immigrants from uh, Cuba and South and Central America have helped Miami to thrive. These uh, differ. That's not the situation, uh, for example, in Kansas City. Um, Kansas City has a downtown that's doing well, but for other reasons. So I don't know that you can standardize it other than to say that if you don't have high density and you don't have mixed use, and you don't have institutions, whether they are hospitals or schools or universities uh, or museums and libraries, you don't have a downtown. Uh, it's just business. Nobody wants that kind of life any longer. Well, that's interesting. I'll go um, out to you. Are you familiar with um, the downtown revitalization of old Las Vegas? Not really. I know a little bit about it. I've been there, uh, but I wouldn't comment it. I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable. Um, well, then let me ask you. So I know we've taken up a lot of your time today. Can you tell our audience what are you working on now? Well, uh, at the moment, I'm promoting my new book, Heart of the City. <laughs> Uh, I'm still teaching. Uh, I have taught at Yale University for 53 years. Uh, I teach part-time, uh, two or three courses a year, uh, which is a lot. Uh, and I've been doing that since I began teaching in 1967. Uh, I'm probably going to write another book. I haven't quite decided what. Uh, there are now eight that I've produced. Uh, I am a consultant. 
Uh, I used to do a great deal more of that. That's how the belt line happened. Uh, the last uh, case I had was a, a short uh, bit of work in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I sometimes get some work in New York, but I'm not looking for it. Uh, to give you a, a sense, uh, I'm 79 uh, and I'm not retired. Well, I'm kind of curious. Do you teach at Yale? Uh, what kind of studios do you teach uh, in architecture or urban planning? I I teach uh, courses in Yale College and in the School of Architecture. I have taught uh, two studios in my life. They are my my. I teach real classes with reading and assignments, and I teach classes uh, with a thing I invented, and that is games. I have games that involve. Uh, building housing or a shopping center, uh, all kinds of different games. But mine are traditional university classes, some sponsored by Yale College and some by the School of Architecture. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to take that. Um, And uh, well, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, again, they really need to get this book. This is so fascinating about really how to uh, bring it all together, urban planning, architecture, landscape architecture, et cetera. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, it's an excellent interview. You asked wonderful questions, and I'm pleased we had time to, to talk through these things so they aren't just very fast statements that can't be verified by people. It was a treat for me, too. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please contact me through the Florida chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects and drop me an email. Thank you for listening.